The Stonewall Inn clearly has so much rich and important history. But can you just share a little bit about what led up to the Stonewall riots and what happened for the people who were there that night to just say, no, no, like this is not okay. We're not going to take it. We're going to resist. There are a lot of stories. What happened in 1969, there isn't a lot of documentation because people didn't want to be outed. So we don't really know exactly what happened because, I mean, you could lose your job back then. You could get thrown out of your family. You could even get killed. Tree, who was one of my bartenders, who was 80 years old, and he was there during the riots. The night of the rebellion, they were after the bosses for money laundering, no licenses. The mafia bought gay bars because they they knew that's where the money was, you know, because gay bars were a safe haven. When the mafia wouldn't pay the police off that week, they would come in and harass the bars. They were tired of it. They were tired of, of being abused. They were tired of being harassed. They were tired of being arrested. And it just all came to a head. And that night, they fought back. When the police came in that side, my friends and I kicked the plywood door out here, and we got out on the street. Outside, there was maybe 30, 40 people. Within a few hours, there was a couple of hundred people. A couple of hours later, it was close to 900 people out there. The police They all came out and they just started protesting. I think there's so many myths surrounding the Stonewall Inn and what happened here. And I think that, you know, regardless of if it was a brick, if it was, uh, you know, a, a lesbian woman who threw the first punch, if it was a trans woman of color who took off a heel, whatever that might be, it's really about and the entire community coming together and fighting back. I mean, that's really what this was. It was the first time that everyone stood up and said enough. I think that everyone was tired of being oppressed. I think the country was right for that at that moment because of the Vietnam War, because of the civil rights struggle, because of everything that was going on in terms of women's rights at that time. So I think it was just a critical kind of explosive time in American history and the LGBTQ people had been persecuted so much. And more importantly, this was, yes, mafia owned and certainly not the nicest place to have a drink in town, but it was a place where LGBTQ people could actually be themselves. They could actually slow dance together and feel safe. Our movement was launched out of the need to really protect and wanting to have a safe queer space. The uprising and subsequent demonstrations drew hundreds of supporters and jump-started a new chapter of activism and advocacy in the fight for LGBTQ equality, a fight that's still going on today, half a century later. While progress has been made toward full rights, respect, and equality in the last 50 years, there still is so much more work to be done. More than half of LGBTQ Americans live in states that have no explicit non-discrimination protections for employment, housing, and public accommodations. That means that people can be fired from their jobs or denied housing because of who they are or who they love. So why am I telling you this? Well, because we all should care about the still legal discrimination in our country, and because even now, many state legislatures are promoting discriminatory laws against LGBTQ civil and human rights. The Trump administration has banned transgender Americans from serving on our military and is moving to allow adoption and foster care agencies to discriminate against potentially loving LGBTQ parents. None of this is acceptable, and we have to keep working toward protecting and advancing LGBTQ rights everywhere. Hi, I'm Chelsea. Welcome to Why Am I Telling You This, the Clinton Foundation podcast. 
In each episode, we will share stories of the people, issues, and events that have shaped our work and our world. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Kirk Kelly, owner of the Stonewall Inn and co-founder of the Stonewall Inn Gives Back Initiative, a nonprofit that provides year-round educational, strategic, and financial assistance to grassroots organizations across the country that support LGBTQ Americans, particularly those in smaller cities and rural communities. Full disclosure, I'm a proud Stonewall ambassador. There are many times as the police commissioner you come across a crossroad, and I feel I am, we are at one now. I think it would be irresponsible of me as we go through World Pride Month not to speak of the events at the Stonewall Inn in June of 1969. Well, I'm certainly not going to stand up here and pretend to be an expert on what happened at Stonewall. I do know what happened should not have happened. The actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. The actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive, and for that, I apologize. We're here today, Kurt, on this pretty extraordinary moment together. What was your reaction when you heard that finally, after 50 years, the NYPD was going to actually apologize? Wow. It's just amazing. I mean, I, I haven't even been able to really process it because I just found out about it a couple minutes ago. Um, I, I'm, I think it's amazing. 50 years ago, they were arresting us and fighting us, and they blocked themselves in our bar. And now, 50 years later, we're now together. A formal apology 50 years later? Wow. Do you know what? I think I was supposed to be there. That's why they wanted that. Wow. I have people that were going to this meeting today, and I think you said the police commissioner. This is all starting to hit me, but I came here for you instead. That was, I was, we were supposed to. <laughs> I'm blushing. You can't see, but I'm blushing. And so no, yeah, humbled um, that we're here together today. One of my other partners is there. And she said, yeah, he apologized. Uh, I remember as soon as I walked, I was like, Kurt, they apologized. I'm going to run to the bar. And I knew he was doing a podcast with you all. So I, I wasn't maybe going to catch him. It's like, it's like, oh, my God. It's like, oh, my God. And we're both like, oh, my God, we got to run down there. So my name is Stacy Lentz. I'm a co-owner here at the Stonewall Inn, and I actually run our nonprofit, the Stonewall Inn Gives Back Initiative. So we had all been invited to have a, a meeting with the police, kind of talking about protections, things that need to be in place in terms of, of policing around World Pride. Um, for me, on a personal note, I thought it was incredible. I thought it was about time. I couldn't believe it really hadn't happened before. I think it speaks volumes about the NYPD. We have a police force in New York City that really wants to work with the LGBTQ community. I understand police across the country um, aren't as good as the NYPD about um, protecting queer people, about protecting socially trans women of color and investigating their deaths, about other different issues. Um, but I think the NYPD does an excellent job, and I was uh, I was happy that they, they understood that at 50 years later, by now, that announcement needed to be made. It was very symbolic, and it meant a lot to our community. I mean, I, this I, I, everything's... This whole everything's out the door now. So, but no, getting back to what you asked, um, yeah, it's goosebumps. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know how, I don't even know how to put it into words. It, when mar marriage quality happened in in New York in 2011, every time the anything is mentioned gay, they come to the Stonewall. This is the safe haven, and it's becoming more and more and more as as time goes on. So when marriage quality went through in New York, everyone was down there, and I was in the club, and it was really hot. 
So I, I had to get out for a little bit. So I got out, not knowing it was crowded outside too. And standing there um, was a cop and he looked over at me and he said, congratulations. And I go, thank you. He says, if you guys need anything, you just let me know. Anything. To me, that was the first apology. It's really profound. Clearly, Kurt, you have long felt connected to Stonewall and then in 2006 decided to become even more connected right? Um, by not only kind of buying Stonewall, but ensuring that it was this kind of vital, vibrant place. Why did you decide to buy this piece of history and to ensure that it is here forever? Right. Well, I, I worked a couple buildings down. It was never treated the way it should have been treated. It wasn't respected the way it should have been respected. I mean, it wasn't a monument at the time, but as a historical site. I mean, it was kind of like the Liberty Bell being smashed by a hammer every day. And I just wanted to bring the history back to make it look like it should be. I think it needed that. I think the community needed that. They needed their safe haven cleaned up. And certainly now, it is such a vibrant and beautiful place. Can you just talk about some of the changes that you've made? We made it look like what we thought a gay bar would look like if it was legal back then. So right now, we're sitting at the Stonewall Inn. If you look around and go towards the front, there's a crowded kind of wooden bar uh, off to the side. And then off to the other side is a stage. And then we have an upstairs. Upstairs, we made it like Moulin Rouge, like cabaret with all purples and black and gold and little chandeliers and everything. And, and just make it a fun, safe haven for everyone. And you talked to lots of people, I think, and got lots of ideas and suggestions. Oh, yes. Yes. And I think you can feel that. It feels like it is the creation of you know lots of people who care so intensely about this place. Right. And also my help. They're so proud. They're so proud. Every gay pride, they just like are almost in tears to be working there. And that shows to everyone. I think on any given day at the Stonewall Inn, you never know who's going to walk through the doors, especially during Pride Month when so many people want to pay respect to what the brave men and women did in 1969. We're at the Stonewall Inn in the West Village, just coming by to stop through and pay homage. It's just nice to be in the presence of something so historical, like a first step into like digging into queer and trans history. I just wanted to kind of experience the history because I've known so much about this place. So I just wanted to kind of feel like the vibe here. You definitely feel like you can be here forever and you can just talk to anybody, be friends. Tell me what you think. Cheers. Cheers. Happy Pride, guys. In recognition of the Stonewall riots, June is now officially LGBTQ Pride Month, marked by parades and celebrations across the country and around the world. And this year, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, New York City is hosting Stonewall 50, World Pride 2019, a month-long series of events that plan to be the largest Pride celebration in the world. And on June 28th, the Stonewall Inn will celebrate Stonewall Day, to recognize and honor those who led the way and continue to advocate for LGBTQ equality. Kurt, one of the most moving things for me has been hearing you talk about some of the stories of not only what's happened at, at Stonewall, but also how Stonewall has inspired others you know, across the country and around the world. Are there other stories that you want to share that have been particularly kind of meaningful to you? When we bought the Stonewall. Um, I, the first year there, I was in the back room and I was putting something together. And this guy comes up to me 
is I doing? You know, I'm so-and-so from um, this marketing firm. And I'm just curious, how, how, how are you, how are you going to market this place? And I go, I go, well, I want, want it to be for the lesbians, the gays, the um, transgender, drag, leather daddies, bears, straight allies, and even straight people if they want to come and venture into a gay bar. I want it to be for everyone. I want it to be like the gay church. Safe haven for everyone to come. And he looks at me and goes, you know what? Never happen. You're going to have to either make it for gay men or lesbians. And I go, okay, you watch me. Look at us now. It's where people come to mourn, where people come to rejoice. Pulse 43, there's people up the street, down the street. You know, it was an amazing, unified time where everyone came together. We might bicker within the community with each other, but when something like that happens, we all come together and they all come to the Stonewall. Right after the Pulse shooting happened, it was Brooklyn Pride. We got a call around 4 a.m. That Kirk got a call. Now I got a call from my friends down in who lived in Orlando. Said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, take a look at the news. A shootout turned hostage situation turned into a bloodbath at Pulse, a predominantly gay nightclub in Orlando. 49 dead, more than 50 needing medical attention. Immediately, Kurt got some, had some conversations as the operating owner with the police and everything like that. I ran down here that morning, and almost instantaneously, there was a, a kind of a memorial set up front. I mean, there was flowers, I mean, within hours in front of Stonewall. And everyone was coming and putting flowers out in front of the Stonewall. And they were just up the road, down the road. People were all over the place mourning. I remember that. And then a few days later, the actual huge memorial with thousands of people out front. 22 years old, Paul Terrell Henry, 41 years old. The reason I'm here is because, uh, whew, this is so scary. This is so scary because the people who died were safe. They were safe and there's not a lot of places in this world where we get to feel safe as gay individuals and I'm just here because I can't be alone with this feeling you know we're here to hold up the lives of those lost in this horrendous tragedy we don't want them to have died in vain we have to stand up we have to speak out when there is a heinous crime like this against our community why I'm here <laughs> for a lot of reasons I'm, I'm I, I'd like to say I'm all about love, and I am, but I, I'm really angry. The next day, I got this email from Samantha Power, who was the um, ambassador to the UN at the time. I got an email from her, and this is all at the same time, wanting to hold a UN meeting at the Stonewall. And I said, sure, of course. So upstairs, you've been upstairs. I have been upstairs. Upstairs, they made, they made the tables like a U, and 22 ambassadors throughout the world came for the first LGBTQ summit. And um, they had their little name tags, 
in front of them from what country they were, and they held a meeting upstairs. And Samantha goes to me at the very end. She goes, Kurt, we just made history together. And you mentioned this was before it became a monument. And in 2016, President Obama designated the Stonewall National Monument outside of Stonewall. Stonewall Inn. So this week, I'm designating the Stonewall National Monument as the newest addition to America's national park system. Stonewall will be our first national monument to tell the story of the struggle for LGBT rights. I believe our national park should reflect the full story of our country, the richness and diversity and uniquely American spirit that has always defined us, that we are stronger together, that out of many, we are one. That's what makes us the greatest nation on earth, and it's what we celebrate at Stonewall. Can you talk about that moment and kind of what it's meant to be recognized officially as such an important part of our American history? It's hard to, to explain what it feels like to accomplish something and to be recognized. And, 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 and so th- that our community is recognized by the president of the United States of America. And he went out enough to give us our own monument to say, yes, you're not a second class citizen. You are a part of us. For the community, it was overwhelming. When you have the leader of the free world acknowledge that your story needs to be told as part of the rest of the American story and that it represents and will be in the same category as the Statue of Liberty. When I see that the park rangers out front, I kind of get teary-eyed. That tapestry of American stories. And for us to be included in that was incredible. There's a lot of pressure because we are the keepers of history. We have to keep the legacy going. We have to keep the bar going. And that means finances, because if it goes under, the gay church is gone, you know. Um, so there's a lot of pressure that way. There's a lot of pressure when it comes to people all have different stories and to keep their stories going. And can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with Stonewall and Gives Back and how you are trying to help people understand, yes, like we've come so far And also, yes, we still have so far to go. Right. We're starting out in the United States in rural areas, upstate New York, Kentucky, you know, where, you know, kids are still getting kicked out from their home when they say they're gay, when they come out, aren't allowed to go to their proms with their significant others. They're really just not allowed to say who they love. So we started having, you know, hundreds if not thousands of fundraisers and community events Uh, since the onset when we opened in 2007. We had our first ever Stonewall Inn gives back probably circa 2008. I would pick a different charity every Tuesday and we'd have what we call Stonewall gives back upstairs. And at that point, I probably would get 10 people in the room and now we're getting... uh, thousands and celebrities at our events so it's come a long way and we formalized the process two years ago uh, and we are very fortunate to have Chelsea Clinton come and launch that for us and we were thrilled about that so we're really focused on grassroots organizations as well as programming typically in the places where equality would be slow to arrive and where people face daily stigma Uh, on a broader scale if you look around the country you know there's 28 states where you could still be fired for being LGBTQ so you could actually get married on a Friday but you could still be fired on a Monday so we've got to make sure we make that change and those kind of places don't have the access 
access or resources or visibility. It's typically in the Midwest, the South, Puerto Rico, places outside the coastal bubble cities where we're very fortunate to have more resources and more access and more LGBTQ family. So we're really going into those places across the country, partnering with grassroots organizations as well as doing our own programming, using the Stonewall Inn name its recognition as the global symbol for gay rights to go and spread that legacy out to other places and really try to help fight and keep that legacy alive. Our youth, they're forgetting that fight and what it was like to not be able to say who they love. They don't know what the guys and women did in 1969, how they felt, how they were repressed, and they fought back. And they have to know their history in order to have a future. Because when that right is being taken away from you, they have to know to fight back. Well, and particularly now, I mean, given that we have an epidemic of uh, trans women of color being murdered across our country, that we have an administration that is banning people from the military, not because of their lack of fitness to serve, but because of who they are. And what I find just so appalling as a parent, you know, denying people who have kind of love in their hearts to give the ability to give that love to children who desperately, desperately need it. Desperately. And so I I couldn't you know, agree more, Kurt, that we have to be aware of our history, not only to be appropriately grateful and humbled by those who fought so hard to ensure that we have kind of more rights and opportunities today, but also to recognize that those fights are not done. On a personal note, I will never forget 2010, 2011, I'd been at the UN for a meeting they had with LGBTQ activists from around the world. And I saw this woman speak from Uganda and to have her give this amazing speech. And then I saw her out front of Stonewall and we were upstairs talking and she's like, don't think this is weird, but, you know, can I dance with you? And I was like, of course you can dance with me. No, I don't think this is weird. Of course you can dance with me. And she starts crying. And I'm like, oh, my God, why are you crying? Not understanding. And she's like, I would be killed if I was doing this with a woman in my country. I would be murdered for this. So to have that freedom and to see the joy on her face as she was dancing and dancing with another woman just, you know, at Stonewall, I, I will never forget that as long as I live. The reality is that the fight that started here in 1969, it's not done. The battleground has shifted from Christopher Street to those 28 states and the 70 countries where you can still be criminalized for being LGBTQ. So we're trying to put boots on the ground in those places. Stonewall to me means strength in numbers. So every time you put a boulder down, that wall gets stronger and stronger. In our community, As long as we stick together, no one will knock down that wall. Not a politician, no administration. So we can create that wall. We keep that wall together. Amen. Kurt, thank you so much. No, thank you. I mean, for your time today and even more for everything that you're doing. Same with you. It is still a crime to be LGBTQ in 70 countries around the world, and it is unsafe in many more. Homosexuality is a crime in 38 African countries, and new laws in Nigeria and Uganda have increased potential punishments for those charged. Offenders could be imprisoned for life, and the bill also includes jail time for just providing services to those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Some LGBTQ people who are forced to leave for their safety or their very lives seek asylum in the United States. 
To escape persecution, some gay and transgender Africans have come to the United States to seek asylum. For those from Uganda, fleeing their country is a matter of life and death. I'm grateful to be joined by our next guest, Katie Segaro, who is helping LGBTQ asylum seekers in the U.S. find safe resources through Asylum Connect, an organization, website, and mobile application she started while in college, and one she committed to scale when she came to our Clinton Global Initiative University. Well, Katie, tell us about Asylum Connect. What is it and why is it important? Yeah, so the premise of Asylum Connect is that there really should never be a moment when someone doesn't know where it's safe to go for help due to their LGBTQ identity or immigration status. LGBTQ Assam seekers face unique obstacles due to their LGBTQ identity. You often face homophobia or transphobia when accessing social services. So if you think about an LGBTQ Assam seeker who's arriving in this country, oftentimes they're arriving alone. They don't have any sort of information about where it's safe to go for all of their basic human needs. So we've created basically a digital one-stop shop where an LGBTQ Assam seeker can access a free resource database that protects their confidentiality and they can enter their location as well as search for verified services. So whether they're looking for LGBTQ affirming and immigrant friendly housing or legal help or medical help, all of that information is available in a one-stop location. And how do asylum seekers find Asylum Connect or how do you uh, find the people that you are trying to help both protect and connect? Um, so one of the things that actually surprised me, my co-founder is an LGBTQ Assam seeker himself. So when he came to me with the initial idea, that was my first question. Do LGBTQ Assam seekers have access to technology? And in the short answer, many people do. They have mobile devices. They go to public computers. They see technology as a lifeline. Similarly, immigration attorneys and corporate attorneys and law students working on pro bono cases can also pull that information from our website quickly and easily. So if you think about a corporate attorney who doesn't have the sort of kind of expertise in immigration law or may not have the expertise in the LGBTQ field and also is short on time, but their LGBTQ Assam seeker client is coming to them and asking for basic information on local social services so that they can literally survive their asylum process. That's what Assam Connect answers. So we're really filling a really tangible information gap that we believe just shouldn't exist. How did you decide to focus on this issue? What was it about kind of this injustice that so galvanized you? So it's definitely really, really personal to me. I think given my age, there's this expectation that being LGBTQ maybe is easy in this country. I think a lot of people don't know that LGBTQ people still in this country lack basic protections. So for instance, that's why the Equality Act is so important. And from the LGBTQ asylum perspective, to think about fleeing everything due to anti-LGBTQ violence and then coming to a country where you actually don't have those basic legal protections is really, I think, jarring, especially for me. I had struggled with my sexual orientation for a very long time, grew up in more conservative households. So I co-founded Assam Connect when I was a senior at the University of Pennsylvania. My friend, as I mentioned, came to me with that initial idea, born out of his personal experience, seeking LGBTQ asylum. Um, he was one of the first people that I told I was gay to. Um, I actually wasn't out when I first co-founded Assam Connect. And being closeted, I think, there's a certain despair or sadness in terms of not knowing when you'll be able to live authentically. It just doesn't it doesn't feel like you're really in your life. It's almost like you're waiting for something. And I think for me, you know, I knew I was gay since I was 11. So I didn't come out until I was 22. 
Um, so I've been out for four years now and I can tell you it's it's like black and white. There's so much difference and I think you're so much more comfortable with yourself and I think for me that experience is definitely, it's the driving force of why I care about Sam Connect because I do know what that feels like and I don't want anyone else to go through that. And how have you seen uh, the work of Asylum Connect change in the five years since you founded it? Are you doing today what you thought you'd be doing five years ago? Um, yes and no. I think we accomplished our initial goal of creating the first online resource database for LGBTQ asylum, but I don't think I could have imagined um, kind of the the depth that Asylum Connect has been able to cover. So when we first started, we piloted our resource website and app in Seattle. Um, fast forward today, and we're live in 20 states, and we've seen such a growth in terms of user traffic, people that are supporting us. And I think just the need has been so clarified, especially in the current administration. I think doing this today, it's, you know, so much more important because LGBTQ asylum seekers are being targeted by this administration. President Donald Trump responded with a plan to tighten asylum standards and discourage border arrivals. The review of more than 8,400 reports of solitary confinement and ICE detention found immigration officers repeatedly used isolation cells to punish gay, transgender, and disabled immigrants for their identities. So today, after five years of tremendous growth, sadly. I mean, thankfully, but sadly, in response to tremendous need. What is the next horizon Mm -hmm. for Asylum Connect? We actually launched a new version of our resource database in Canada last week directly as a response to this current administration and the fact that we have gotten more social media messages and emails from LGBTQ Assam seekers and attorneys in Canada because more and more persecuted LGBTQ people are looking to Canada now as a beacon of hope instead of the United States, sadly. So I bring that up because we are looking at, you know, Western Europe now, expanding our catalog over there. We do hope that the United States will continue to be a beacon of hope. And it's definitely very needed in this country. But I think international expansion is also something that we're working towards. We're also trying to expand our services by offering our second product. So we're actually creating something called Asylum Connect Community, which will add new moderated online forums for LGBTQ asylum to our resource website and app. So LGBTQ asylum is a very emotional, complex, and traumatic process. So we think that connecting people in basically a virtual safe place will have so much value and not just offering verified information, but also a sense of community is so important and central in our mission, especially today. And so, Katie, what do you need right now and how can people help you in a really practical and immediate sense if they want to engage with Asylum Connect? Mm -hmm. I think one really tangible thing that people can do, if you do know of a resource that you think is immigrant friendly, you can suggest it on our website. So actually, we're looking for people to help us build this out nationally. As I mentioned, we're live in 20 states, but we want to be live in at least half the country by the end of this year, um, especially given the urgency of this cause. And then if you're a lawyer or an organization that's working with this population, you can claim your organization's profile on our website and app to take agency over the profile and make sure that the services are as up to date and that information stays accurate over time. And then definitely financial resources. As a nonprofit, we depend on generous grants and individual contributions to make our work possible and to make sure that the technology and information is as accurate as possible. And Katie, I know this is now kind of the work that you do. 
Um, but how how many people are at Asylum Connect? So I am the uh, co-founder and first full-time executive director of Asylum Connect, um, but it's definitely only been possible through all of our volunteers. So right now we have 27 volunteers dedicating their time and just really, really passionate about this issue. And one of my favorite things about the team is not just that they're dedicating their time, but also they represent um, a diversity of sexual orientations, gender identities, immigration statuses. So these are people with such personal ties to what we're doing and also such important perspectives. It's so important in terms of building trust with our users to see people publicly on our website and also supporting our work, telling the story. It's just so much credibility. So I think, you know, having them sign on to our cause and having their support throughout this entire process has been extremely pivotal to our work. I think that that is a testament to people understanding why uh, this is so urgent. Mm -hmm. And yet it is clearly remarkable how much you've done with your army of volunteers. Yeah, we're definitely lucky to have them. And and we're all lucky to have you. Katie, (laughs) thank you so much for taking your time uh, to share your work. And even more, thank you for all you're doing every day with Asylum Connect. Yeah, thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening. For more, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our work to improve lives across the country and around the world, visit clintonfoundation.org. Hi, I'm Megan Strother. Here at the Clinton Foundation, I'm part of the team that's engaging the next generation of leaders on college campuses around the world. Each year, we bring together a growing community of young leaders who don't just discuss global challenges, they take real, concrete steps towards solving them. From manufacturing wheelchairs for developing countries, to establishing campus bike share programs, from creating free vision clinics to developing e-learning applications for mobile phones, these commitments prove that young people have the power to make a significant impact. Next on, why am I telling you this? We the people. That becomes the responsibility of the president to work for we the people in forming a more perfect union. So to do that, every single president, from George Washington to Donald Trump, consciously or not, has had to define what more perfect union means. I think the best presidents have sought to define we the people in a way that broadens both the idea and the reality of who counts in this country. As president, my often stated definition of making our union more perfect was this. I thought my job was to widen the circle of opportunity, to deepen the meaning of freedom, and to strengthen the bonds of our community. If we do our part, chances are we'll get a president, he, and I hope to God someday she, who certainly will do the same.